The epistle for today's Mass is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Brethren, knowing the time, that is now the hour for us to rise from sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is past, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and impurities, not in contention and envy, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the 21st chapter of the gospel of St. Luke. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, by reason of the confusion of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men withering away for fear and expectation of what shall come upon the whole world. For the powers of heaven shall be moved, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and majesty. But when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is at hand. And he spoke to them as similitude. See the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth their fruit, you know that summer is nigh. So you also When you shall see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then I say to you, this generation shall not pass away till all things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear faithful, there are two ways that we can look at history. One is seeing history as circular, and the other is seeing history as linear. And both of these ways of looking at history have their dangers. The danger of the circular view of history is that it makes life seem meaningless. And this, in in the history of the world, was always the pagan view of history. They looked around at nature and they saw all the cycles in nature. You have the cycle of day and night. Day comes, then night comes, then day comes, then night comes. Or they saw the circle of the year. You have the four seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Spring, summer, fall, and winter. And that just repeats. Or they saw the cycle of life and death. Things come into life, things die. Things come into life, things die. And they thought to themselves, with these cycles that we observe in nature, maybe in fact that cyclic characteristic is embedded in the very fabric of reality, that reality itself is cyclic, and that we humans are just sort of caught in a circle that's always turning. We're on, we're sort of attached to a big wheel that goes around and around and around, and around, and around, and so on, forever. And we know that if you're strapped to a wheel that's turning, you've still got free will, you can still think, and so on, but you have no power whatsoever over the course of events. All you can do is just be on the wheel 
and go where it goes. It's going to head in a certain direction without you having any control over it. And this, as I say, was the pagan perception of reality. The history is just a series of repeating cycles where the things that happened in the past will inevitably come back after a certain period of time and happen again exactly the same way that they happened before. That we're just caught up in this wheel, or perhaps you can think of like a whirlpool. You're in a whirlpool that's just going around and around and around, and there's really nothing you can do about it. As I say, this view of history has some dangers, some serious dangers for the human psyche. And one is that it makes life seem utterly hopeless. If there's absolutely nothing that you can do to make an impact on history, to change the course of history, if your free will inserted into reality has effectively no impact, then what is the point of anything that I do if I can't change anything? This is what motivated and still motivates the Buddhists in their conception of human happiness. When they think about what can humans strive for in order to attain completion, the best thing they can come up with is that you strive to remove yourself from reality as much as possible. This is what nirvana is about, that you reduce yourself to nothingness. Nirvana means nothingness. That reality is inherently hostile to everything that you aspire to, and therefore the best thing that you can do is make yourself comfortably numb in the presence of reality. Somehow remove yourself so totally that you don't even realize that stuff happens or even that you exist. That's the first problem with the circular view of history, that it makes life seem meaningless. The second problem is that it makes history and reality seem to be irrational. Now you think about if you saw someone in town and they were just going around the block, they were just driving around the block over and over and over again. And every day when you go out, you would see them doing that. What would your conclusion be about that person? You would necessarily think, this, this man is utterly crazy. He's, he's insane. He's, he's just going around in circles. He's not going anywhere whatsoever. Um, he needs help. Someone needs to help him. So, the same would be true if we saw reality that way. If reality is just going around in circles, but not going anywhere, there's no direction to, to history, you would be, you would make, infer that history itself has no rational mind behind it, that reality is inherently irrational. So you would not um, think that there's any mind behind reality. You would not be confident in the, your ability to look into reality and discern some intelligible order there, and so you would just give up in learning anything from reality. So, as I say, these, these are the two problems in the circular view of history. They lead people to think that life is meaningless, and secondly, that reality is irrational and there's no reason to really investigate reality. And that view of history more or less pervaded the ancient pagan civilizations, whether it be the Egyptians, the Babylonians, or the Persians, or the Incans, or the Mayans, or the Greeks, or the Romans, or the Chinese, or the Indians, or whoever. All of these pagan nations had this view of human history. And that's not our view of history as Catholics. 
we believe in a different concept of history. The history has a direction. History is linear. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. History is a story, a history that is directed by a supreme mind. And we get this certainly from Scripture. The Jews got this from Scripture. And that's why they were the one exception in the ancient world to among all the peoples in the regard to the view of history. They were the one people who believed in a linear view of history instead of that circular view. They thought that history, as we think, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And because God told them, God told the Jews that he designed the history of the world, um, that the story begins with God creating the heavens and the earth and placing man on earth as its highest creature. And then the next part of the story is that man falls. Man rebels against God's order and places him in a state of being fallen. And God's decision of, of what to do in that situation is not that he's going to wipe man out and start over, but that God is going to take the evil that man himself has embedded in creation and in his own nature, and he's going to bring good out of that evil. And that's kind of like the middle part of the story. The promise of the Redeemer that he will come and save us from our sins. And of course, we relive that middle part of the story at the beginning of the liturgical year in the season of Advent. We know that, that God worked with the specific people to enable them to retain the right idea of God the idea that there's only one God, that he's the Lord of reality, that he created the universe in time, and that there is a direction to history. There is a beginning and a middle and an end. The middle part is the coming of the Messiah. And then when he comes, he will establish the kingdom of God on earth, a kingdom that will enable us to reach our goal of heaven. And then sometime after that, there will come the end of the story. We all know the end of the story is given to us at the beginning of the liturgical year and at the end of the liturgical year. We heard about it last Sunday. We hear about it again on this Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. The end of the story is our Lord coming a second time to judge the living and the dead and to wrap everything up in the most reasonable way possible, to give to every single person what they deserve to reward them for the good and to punish them for the bad that they've done in their life. We're very familiar with this view of history because we're Catholics. We're convinced that it's the only true view of history. And this is the view of history that gives meaning to our lives. It tells us that there is a good and wise God in control of reality and that he has given us free will that enables us to decide our destiny, that we have a part to play in human history and that history is headed in a certain direction, and that direction is a rational direction, and when all is said and done, absolutely everything is going to be sorted out. There's going to be complete justice at the very end. So, that's our view of history. We're reminded of the end point on the first Sunday of Advent, and 
I mentioned that, that it's not just the circular view of history that has its dangers. It's also the linear view of history. And it's above all those dangers that I want to warn you against in this sermon. That's the main point of this sermon. And our Lord himself points out these dangers. He knows that if he tells us all the end of the story, it's going to create an occasion of sin for us or an occasion of spiritual danger for us. And so he specifically goes out of his way to warn us against that. We all know what happens when you have a spoiler and you, you know I mean, you're told how the story is going to end. I mean, before you've read the entire story, you're going through the book and someone tells you, well, this is how it's going to end. From that point, you become very anxious to get to the end of the story. You want to anticipate the end of the story. You want to jump to the end of the story. You don't want to go through all the steps of reading every single chapter and every single word till you get to the very end. And this is a quasi-universal problem for everyone who believes in the linear view of history. They're always wanting the end to come as soon as possible. I mean, when you get to the end, you can, you can sort of rest, right? And that, that's the whole point of drama, that it builds up a certain tension. You're looking, looking for some resolution to that tension. It's the same with, with music, a, a composition of music. You build up tension, and then slowly but surely it resolves. And once you reach that end point, you can rest. You're at peace. So we are desperate sometimes to get to the end of history when we should not be. Waiting for the second coming is not like waiting for the first coming. With the first coming in the season of Advent, we are meant to be anxious for the coming of our Lord. We're meant to be anticipating with a great desire the coming of our Lord. But we know when it's going to come. It's going to come on the 25th of December. But we're not meant to be anxious for the second coming. For when our Lord comes again, our Lord coming the first time versus our Lord coming back the second time, the attitude that our Lord expects from us is very different. We have all kinds of examples of in the history of Christianity of last judgment lovers who are anticipating with the wrong sort of anxiety the end of the world. Even in the time of St. Paul, you had the Thessalonians who were thinking that the end of the world is just right around the corner. Because they thought, I mean, well, the end of the world, is maybe it's next week, what have you. They stopped working. And they thought, I mean, if, if the end of the world is going to happen next week, then you would definitely think that it's not any real point in making money, is there? I mean, I make some money today, and then the end of the world happens tomorrow. No real point in that. So they, they stopped working. And St. Paul said, no, the second coming is not around the corner. And if you don't work, then you don't get any coffee donuts after Mass on, on Sundays. Nobody should give you any food. I'm commanding the Thessalonians, don't give you any food if, if you quit your job because you think the end of the world is coming. Another interesting episode of this is in the early 20th century, the Jehovah's Witnesses were predicting the date of the end of the world. And they were telling all their people to stop having children. You know, one of the things that our Lord says about the end of the world is that woe to, to those who are with child at that time. It's going to be really rough on them. So he said, well, the end of the world is going to happen, I don't know, you know, May 16th, 1924. 
and since it's going to happen then, you shouldn't have any kids anymore. Of course, the day came and the day went, and they said, oh, well, you know, we made a mistake. We'll have to revise the date, and they set a new date, um, and set maybe half a dozen dates, and finally they realized that they should stop predicting the end of the world and stop telling people to not have any kids. So it, this, this same thing happens today with modern-day Protestants. They, they want to accelerate the end of the world. They're really anxious for the end of the world so that they can get raptured up to heaven according to the particular interpretation of Scripture. Um, and so, I mean, in 1969, um, there was, there was a, a Protestant who went to Jerusalem and he tried to set the mosque and the Temple Mount on fire so that um, it would burn down and then the Jews could rebuild their temple and then the second coming would happen. So these are the the sorts of things that happen when people become obsessed with the end. And we ourselves, as traditional Catholics, can be afflicted by this obsession. Some of us are always anticipating, for instance, that some sort of chastisement is around the corner. Some people count earthquakes or tsunamis. Some people are looking at um, tracking comets or tracking asteroids, trying to figure out when the next one's going to hit and thinking that, yeah, maybe that one will be the big one. Some people are really anxious for the three days of darkness. They love to have the three days of darkness come. Um, as, as something that will accelerate the consummation of the history of the world. And this is the great danger that afflicts the, the last judgment and the chastisement lovers, that they're always living in the future instead of living in the present. And the grace that God gives you is only for now. You only receive present grace. You don't receive future grace. So it's so important for us to live in the present and not in the future. And I would like to point out three words of our Lord that correct this false anxiety for the second coming and help us avoid that non number one danger of the linear view of history. And these words are not taken from from today's Gospels, but they are taken from the Gospel of Luke, the, the sort of total text of Luke where our Lord is speaking about the Last Judgment. The first thing is this. Don't believe those who think that they know when the last day will be. He says, when shall these things be? Take heed that you are not seduced. For many will come in my name saying, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. If anybody comes to you and says, I know when the end of the world's going to be, or I know there's a chastisement coming around the corner, I know the date for the chastisement, you say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Nobody knows. Our Lord made that very clear. Nobody knows. It's not given to you. It's not given to me. It's not given to anybody we are not meant to know. So anyone who claims to know is a liar, is a deceiver. Secondly, do not be anxious about the end of the world. When you hear of wars and seditions, says our Lord, do not be terrified. These things must first come to pass, but the end is not yet. Don't think that you can become an expert of tracking the signs, investigating the signs, 
doing Google searches about when the end of the world is going to be and putting together the clues and saying, yeah, I think I figured it out. Because there's this going on in Iraq or there's this thing going on in Syria or the Middle East or Asia, natural disasters, human disasters, disasters in the church. I think I figured it out. I think I know. I'm putting the clues together. I think I've got it. I've got it. I've got a solid case. You don't know. You don't know. Do not be anxious. The third thing is the disposition concerns our disposition of soul. We are meant to be calm and patient. Do not meditate beforehand, said our Lord, how you shall answer. A hair of your head shall not perish. In your patience, you will win your souls. Sometimes the reason why we're so anxious for the end of the world is we do not like the effort that is demanded of us in our Catholic life. Wouldn't it be nice if God just stepped in and implemented the nuclear solution where he just wipes everything out and I would not have to struggle in this 21st century world where it's difficult to be a Catholic, where you know the church is going to pot, uh, the world is going to the pot, the political situation is, is so disastrous, there's all this unrest and so on. Wouldn't it be nice God just stepped in and wiped out everything out for me and, and fixed it all up. But this is not God's intention. God wants you to patiently exercise yourself in your daily grind. He has a perfection to which he's called you. And you can only reach that perfection by your day-to-day -day activities, by doing your duty of state, by keeping up your spiritual life, by praying, and doing what's within your power to do in your current um, situation in, in our 21st century world in the, in, the, in the period of history that God has called you to live in. That's what God expects of you. Nothing less, nothing more. And we must not allow this, this desire to be relieved of our duty of struggling every day for our sanctification. This will be our glory one day. We work out our salvation each day. If we struggle, if we can say on our judgment day, you know, I lived in the 21st century, and it was, it was kind of rough being a Catholic back then, but I persevered. I persevered. So, my dear faithful, during Advent, during the season of Advent, we await our Lord with anxiety, and we know when he will come. Now, after the coming of our Lord, as far as the big picture goes, we await our Lord with patience. You can be anxious for our Lord in anticipating Christmas, but you're not meant to be anxious for our Lord in anticipating his second coming. The circular view of history has its dangers. It makes the world seem irrational and hopeless. And thankfully, we don't have that view of history. We, we believe the words of God, that history has a direction, that he's in control of it, that it's rational. But the linear view of history has its dangers as well that we must avoid, and that is that we're over-anxious for the end of the world. We are not meant to know when the end of the world will come. We are not meant to be anxious about the coming of the end of the world. And above all, we're meant to be calm and patient in working out our salvation in our daily life. Fear not, little flock, says our Lord to us. For it has pleased your Father to give you a kingdom. Make to yourselves a treasure in heaven which will not fail, where no thieves come nor do moths destroy things. 
It's in your patience that you will win your souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.